Welcome everyone to Rockin' Nation Podcast. This is Dive Cuts, and if you are a long-time listener of the show, you will uh, no doubt recognize that I am not Sam Snelling, site manager of rockinnation.com. I am Josh Matica, deputy manager. Uh, I'm stepping in for Sam uh, this week as he is dealing with some other matters, not basketball-related, but much to your luck. I am joined by regular uh, regular co-host and basketball editor at Rockham Nation, Matt Harris. Matt, how you doing tonight, man? I'm doing well. Um, thank you for uh, agreeing to come along on this magical ride that sometimes takes us to places unknown and I'm sure has lost us countless listeners over the last 40 years that we've been doing this. So uh, thank you for stepping into this vortex. Of course. And, you know, speaking of places unknown and losing listeners... Um, it's funny that Sam asked me to step in at this moment. I think a few weeks ago, I was looking over some uh, some analytics that were published at the end of I think it was December, and looking at the podcasting look at the podcasting numbers, which have been really good. Thank you to everybody who's listened and subscribed and all that. Uh, and I was looking at some of the reviews from the past year of the podcast just to see what everyone was saying, and I just so happened to run into one back from when I was hosting a podcast I think in early 2019 and someone's uh, criticism of me was Josh sounds like a valley girl so unfortunately uh, unfortunately you dear listener have to put up with me tonight hopefully my cadence has improved over the mic I'm I'm more of the uh, Milford Academy style I'd rather be neither seen nor heard uh, except on the except on the written page but alas here we are tonight you, you have a very very um, public radio. Uh, reading the news hour voice is what I would say you have. Like someone That's is saying, that is uh, that is that is where I put uh, Peggy in there. You have a very KBIA voice to our very very Columbia centric <laughs> listeners. Well, the funny thing is, I I never actually did anything with KBIA. I was more uh, I was I was pegged to some KOMU assignments, and then I ended up going to work for one of their competitors right out of school. So, but yes, I've I've really fashioned my. Uh, my speaking voice on podcasting very much after the NPR style but hopefully I like I said I've improved in the in about the year and a half since I was regularly recording podcasts for Rockham Nation anyway like I said uh, this is Dive Cuts the Mizzou basketball uh, podcast for Rockham Nation uh, dare I say it the best podcast out there for Mizzou basketball information and uh, unlike last week when you and Sam uh, bravely ventured into the waters of basketball talk with no Mizzou basketball to be had there is actually uh, some hoops to talk about this week Matt uh, Mizzou returned from their 11-day layoff from a brief COVID-19 pause to uh, return to play against Texas A&M in College Station it was a rough first uh, 20 minutes of play. Mizzou ended up taking a lead into the half, and then in the second half really kind of exerted their will over the Aggies, ended up taking away a 16-point win um, in their return to play. Matt, I know you and I were talking earlier today just about some of the stuff that we were seeing as we watched, and I watched live on Saturday as I was tweeting for the account, but you were not able to, and you watched over the few... We watched over the game a few times earlier today. Um, what were some of your general takeaways from Mizzou's win over AM? and uh, I think A&M did, by and large, what we thought they were going to do. Um, they made it stilted. Um, they made it a game where it was going to be who could sit down and consistently defend. And I think the one thing I always take away from like watching Buzz Williams, I think I told you before we started recording, Billy Kennedy teams at least in his latter years, was could you find offense outside the regular flow of what you were trying to execute in the half court? Could you find other sources of offense? You know, you know, the tertiary guys in your sets or in when things broke down, could you find enough production to sort of carry yourself forward here? Um, the one thing I think was heartening for Missouri was uh, Jeremiah Tillman was engaged all day, um, and if... Tillman or Pinson is locked in, then I think you can generally, um, that solves half the battle for you. Um, Drew Smith played a really, really good game and bounced back. Uh, looked like his hand and ball handling in general was better. Um, so when he's a steady hand on the till, on the till, that's a pretty good, um, development as well. But I think what struck me about it was, uh, Missouri got 
uh, production, particularly in the second half, from guys who um, aren't you know going to be highlight you know headliners for them. Um, and they, the way those guys produced offense, wasn't in something that I think a lot of people are going to find aesthetically pleasing. It was a lot of um, opportunism in there, and I think making. Know, maximizing the touches they got, um, and then they just played good defense. You know, Missouri is the team that the formula, you know, is always going to be: can we sit down and play good positional defense? Can we force tough shots? Can we force guys who aren't good at taking those shots into, into being the guys you're going to rely on? And they did a good job of that. Um, so it was ugly; it was stilted, um, but they got enough from a star, and you know, some some guys lower down on the roster came through for them, and, and they got a road win out of it. And, at the end of the day, uh, aesthetics kind of take a backseat to results, uh, especially right now for this team, especially given what they had coming out of Starkville. Um, so I think this is the kind of performance you want to see from them after what transpired a, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, I as I was writing the preview for A&M last week, one of the things that I was I was looking at is just, I mean, obviously A&M is, I mean, as good as any basketball team college basketball could team could be outside of Gonzaga and Baylor um Texas A&M is just not very good I mean they have some things that you like about them if, you, if you're a fan but um mostly they're just not good on offense they just don't have a lot of guys that can score and one of the things that I was looking out for was uh, Emmanuel Miller came into the game as really their strongest guy on offense really good attacking the rim uh shoots high efficiency uh shoots at a high efficiency clip down low and gets to the free throw line a lot um I was really curious as to seeing how Missouri would attack him if they would try to make anybody else beat them um, beat them on offense and by and large they did that Emmanuel Miller only scored nine points did have uh, did have nine boards but you know he also had five turnovers and uh, Kobe Brown and Mitchell Smith I think you pointed out earlier to me today were the primary defenders on him did a good job they struggled a little bit with Andre Gordon he went three for three from deep and put up ended up putting up 19 points but I mean with AM if you can get them out of their primary rhythm on offense it's just kind of a matter of time before they start to fall apart. Yeah, I Miller's a guy who, if he's the leading scorer for you this year, I think that would have been problematic for Buzz Williams. I, I think I told Sam last week what they really needed was Savion Flagg to you know be the kind of guy we saw as a sophomore where he really took a step forward. And I thought as a junior, um, if he could take a few, if he could improve his jump shooting a little bit from the outside, would have been an all-SEC type of guy. He had a major step back last year and just – again was not great this week he weekend or last weekend he uh i think he went two of two inside the arc hit a couple tough shots but was one of four from behind the arc um didn't really get on the glass all that much wasn't really like even moving the ball finished with an offensive rating of 90 um just not the kind of wing that they need to be kind of the headliner for them andre gordon uh, made a couple tough shots uh you know a wanted to get him moving towards the top of the key they got a couple of those looks in the first half uh, he had a little mini burst in the second half to kind of try and tighten the ball game. I think after AM, you know, was down 16, he kind of, you know, pushed it back and got the lead back down to 10. And then Missouri kind of closed it out and, you know, extended the lead again. Um, but by and large, it was, it was what we thought it was going to be. Um, they were going to have to try and hope that Miller could produce, that flag would have a, a good ball game and that somebody else would step forward for them. But, just nothing out of the front court. Um, Aku still looks like a guy who's regressed. Uh, Kevin Marfo does what he does, which is get on the glass. Uh, nothing really from Asan Diara, who still looks like a freshman at times and really looked um, just flustered and frustrated at times with his teammates. Uh, I think there was a one play in particular where he about wanted to strangle Hayden Hefner because Hefner didn't drift to the corner for a wraparound kick for a three um jj chandler made a couple tough baskets but realistically i think their hope here was that you know they have a good day from flag that they get something of the usual production from miller and that gordon would have the day he had and it just didn't transpire for them but part of that is missouri did a good job defensively especially in the second half uh like missouri rotates well their help defense is in good position a lot of the time you know they don't do a lot of fancy things defensively they're not they're not going to have a scheme that's going to have a, a fun name attached to it. It's just they're going to sit down, they're going to guard, they're going to force you to take tough shots, and they're going to try and get on the glass as best they can. And 
they will be opportunistic when they want to push off of those misses sometimes, and they're going to come down and they'll run. Uh, at least when it's Pinson and Tillman in the game, they're going to try and run some weave action. They're going to try and you know set up for a high ball screen and get something moving towards the rim. Like the 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 scripts here are pretty familiar for both these teams. I think Missouri did a better job going off script, um, especially late in the first half. They had Javon Pickett. Who gave him five or six points down the stretch there? Second half again, Pickett did a couple nice, had a couple nice cuts to the bucket. Um, they had, uh, you know, Kobe Brown hit a three with a hand in his face, which Kobe Brown struggles to knock down threes when he's all alone in the corner. So you'll take that. Then they had the seven point possession down the floor off Mitch running the rim in transition, which again, you know, is not normally the first option you're looking for <laughs> for Missouri out of transition. So I think I, I think I told you that it just felt like it felt almost fluky in a way when they extended the lead because you looked at who was doing it and how they were doing it and the shots they were coming on and in almost any other situation you'd be like, mm-hmm. is that really the shot you want? And you know, I think Buzz Williams would say, yes, I would like Kobe Brown taking contested threes. <laughs> yes, I would like um, Javon Pickett trying to split a double team with a with two guards driving out of the corner for a floater. Yes, that's that's the shot I would want. Okay, I'm cool if they're going to try and find, you know, Javon Pickett cutting on a B-lob under the bucket. I'm fine with that. Like, I, the shots that the guys taking the shots, I mean, credit to Missouri's guys because they made them, but you can almost probably sense maybe Buzz Williams' angst because the, those aren't, those are shots that you want Missouri to take, and they and they converted. But that's not a good team. They, they, they found a way to produce offense, and they got a result, so... Uh, the the how is almost you know secondary at this point. It's almost irrelevant given what the results and how important those were. Really, I don't understand how anybody could uh, accept the the undignified uh, categorization of Mizzou's run as fluky when you had a seven point possession pop up in the middle of that second half run. That was pretty wild to watch. Yeah, and yeah I was. When I was uh, when I was tweeting along with the game, one of the things that came to my mind that I think I I threw out there was you know when Javon Pickett has his you know once every six seven game outburst where he you know he's gonna score ten fifteen points and he's gonna get a grab a few boards and a few assists like you really gotta capitalize on those games, um, and you know they did a good job. Uh, a few things that I wanted to go over, and obviously, like you said, part of the reason that AM didn't play well in this game and, and didn't get to execute maybe exactly what they wanted to pull out that win was uh, Missouri did a good job. Uh, they were able to shake off any you know semblance of rust coming off of the COVID pause. Uh, the defense looked good throughout, I thought, even in that first half whenever it was kind of a, a rock fight. It, um, you know, I, I think Missouri played good good uh good situational good uh positional defense and they were able to keep texas a&m from you know not hitting any tough shots and you know there were a few times when jj chandler was just heaving up contested threes that were going in that i was having a little bit of a flashback to that second half against mississippi state but for the most part missouri did a really good job um there were a few things that i wanted to cover about the game that missouri played specifically um you mentioned Drew Smith had a really nice return to form after a few games kind of struggling with what appeared to be like a hand or a wrist issue. He really filled up the stat sheet in this one, uh, 15 points, which led the team six rebounds, six assists, four steals, a block and, uh, and when only one turnover and one, one foul, I think was really the, the big thing for me. It was that he was able to kind of stay off the, uh, stay off the foul sheet. Although most people were in this game, yeah. aside they, from they Kobe Brown. Yeah, they let him play a little bit. Um, that that was the one thing that sort of struck me was that you know I looked at the, I did the metrics before I watched the game, and I was curious. Like I looked at the foul counts, and I was like, oh, that seems pretty low. And then I turned it on, and they let him go. Um, they they uh, I, you know, Mizzou fans you know carp all the time about SEC whistles. They swallowed him on Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. they they let him go at it a bit. Um, Drew, I, I think he, he's always going to be a guy who's going to gamble a bit who's always going to take risks, you know, Conzo gives him that freedom. And if you watched him at Evansville, he'll still freelance in a way, but I think he's still so good on the ball and still understands what his guy wants to do, what spots his guy wants to work to most of the time that you're willing to give him that latitude. And, you know, Missouri's not going to be a team that's ever going to like play on the line, up the line. They're never going to like, as a team, 
look to create a ton of on-ball pressure. It's really going to come down to you. Do you trust certain guys within, you know, the half-court team defense that Missouri plays? And, you know, a lot of the time when Drew gambles for steals, it's after a guy's driving and after there's a gap that he's hitting, he's stunting. He comes in from behind to try and poke it loose. That's inevitably going to be kind of a riskier play anyway. Um, so he puts himself in that position. But I think the one thing I was happiest about was that, you know, you saw in the second half him and Drew Bugs kind of took took the wheel a little bit for Missouri. Um, and I think to a certain extent, it was just good to see him kind of become the metronome for them again. Um, I think Missouri, especially late in the first half, started really getting frustrated at the pace that was ha- that was unfolding for them. They weren't able to get out. They weren't able to push. They weren't able to get some early offense going. And then the second half, they just put Drew in, and Drew, you know, comes out, turns the corner, in a side ball screen, gets a layup. You know, gets a couple steals later on for runouts that turn into easy layups in transition. Does a good job getting them into offense, and you know, finding ways to get the ball to Tillman inside and letting Tillman kind of play off the post a bit. So I just thought he did a good job getting Missouri into situations where the offense was going to be as effective as it could be. Um, it was clear that A and M wasn't going to was going to switch everything in the pick-and-roll defense and was going to try and take that away. So I think it was good to have two experienced vets, like both Drews out front there, trying to manage some stuff for them. So the stat line is good, but I was really, really happy, too, with how he just sort of managed the offense and sort of managed the tempo for them in the second half. Yeah, it was much more like what we have come to expect from Drew Smith, that is, uh, over over the course of his you know short career at the University of Missouri. But I mean, and you and you touched on this a little bit and I do want to talk about this. Um you mentioned the other Drew Drew Bugs came in, uh Drew Bugs logged 19 minutes, which was equal to his uh compatriot in the backcourt, Xavier Pinson, who and this was pointed out by several people after the game, Pinson didn't play a whole lot in the second half. I think as you pointed out, he Missouri was frustrated with the pace and you could see Xavier was kind of forcing. He had that one. I think he had like a I don't remember if it was a baseball pass or if he just tried, kind of tried to heave it down court for a transition bucket that got picked off pretty easily. He just didn't look like he was in much of a rhythm, and so Conzo uh, swapped him out for for Bugs, and it seemed to make a big difference. Even if you know Bugs isn't going to create a ton, but he did seem to you know steady things a little bit by just not making bad decisions. Yeah, and, and the one thing about this happened against Liberty as well. I, I think where. X was frustrated at, at what they were doing with the pack line. And, you know, there were some stretches late in the first half where it was very much kind of reminiscent of that. You know, I think he has, um, he tries to hit Tillman with an outlet pass and that doesn't go uh, well. Then there's an early clock three that he takes, I think about 26 seconds on the shot clock. Then um, there's a little bit of a late rotation. He tries to split two defenders, dribbles off his leg. And he goes out of bounds and then they, pull him and they put uh, the Drews back in. So just, I think there are still stretches where Pinson wants to put his imprint on the game. And, you know, that's, you know, in, in a low possession game like this, where, you know, every trip down the floor is magnified. I think you, you trade a little bit of that kind of dynamism offensively for guys who are going to get you into good offense and going to try and maximize what you're going to get. Cause it was very clear that A&M, AM has always been pretty good under Buzz, and even back to Virginia Tech, Buzz's teams have always been really good in transition D and getting back, stopping the ball, building a wall, forcing it to one side. They do a good job of that. And so if that's going to be the ball game there and you're not really able to generate much on the run, then you're going to want to have two guys that are going to come down and get you into some good offense there. And, and it worked out for them. Um, now the question I think that Missouri is going to face going forward is, you know, was this just one of those games where not every three or four games X has – you know, these these kinds of outings usually bounces back and plays pretty well the next game. Uh, the question I think for them more pressingly is what's going to happen with Mark Smith. Um, hit a shot late, um, and I think the thing that was disconcerting, and, and we can talk about this, was that um, he's only four of eighteen now from behind three point arc in SEC play. Um, and aside from like his first three of the game, which he airmailed late in the shot clock. I thought a lot of his jumpers were in rhythm. They were good quality open looks that you want Mark to take. Um, 
and they weren't like bad misses. I mean, they were still coming off his hand pretty well. Um, good rotation in rhythm looked like they were quality coming off his hand, just weren't dropping. So uh, for them, they've got to hope that Mark, you know, that last three knocked whatever rust off was there for him. But uh, his struggles through the first four games, I think, uh, have stood out to me as as problematic. If they don't have any floor spacers, uh, things get tough much, 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 much faster for them. So it'll be that's sort of the issue I think for them moving ahead is if Drew's healthy, X kind of gets himself right, and Tillman's playing well. You know, then you've got three of your four guys are are doing what they need to do, but Mark's probably the most integral because he's the only floor spacer they've got. And without him, life gets harder for the other three. Yeah, and I mean, I think actually now that you mention it, now that I'm looking at um, Missouri's Ken Bomb profile, after this last game, Drew Smith is now uh, Missouri's leading three-point shooter at uh, 36.7%. Mark has dipped down to 36, although... I mean, with the way that Drew has been shooting the ball, I, I can't imagine it'll stay that way for longer, that much longer, although, you know, Mark seems to be struggling in his own right. Yeah, I know Conzo, after the game, was talking about how um, how it's important to get Mark shooting, and, and anybody who's watched the game could tell that, you know, they're just going to let him shoot through this, whatever it is. Um, he, he wasn't afraid to take those shots, and Conzo was talking about how important it is to keep him in the rhythm of the game because once his shot's falling, then he's more engaged on defense. And, you know, I just keep, I, in my mind, it keep coming back to this conversation that Missouri fans have always had about Mark Smith is that, you know, he's a good shooter, he's a good defender, but where's that, like, next step of his game? Can he can he put the ball on the floor? Can he get to the hoop, uh, draw some fouls, get to the free throw line? Because he's obviously a very good free throw shooter as well. And um, just... Even as his career at Mizzou, you know, comes to a close, assuming he wouldn't take an extra year of eligibility, he just never really has developed that element, that next element to his game. But part of me wonders, like, maybe he's more effective without it. Maybe he just needs to be one of those guys that's going to 3 and D and spot up and knock down a high percentage, and, and that's what you need from him. Yeah, I there's... The one thing I would say is, like, I was looking at this over the weekend just because I was more curious because of oddly enough, because they were giving Torrance Watson more minutes, so I was wondering kind of what a trajectory looks like for a, a three-point shooter throughout their career. Um, really, over the over the last five or six years, like he, the biggest jump you see in a guy's three-point shooting percentage is his sophomore year. And then it tends to... A regression as a junior is pretty common, mostly because the scouting report is out, also sometimes because just their volume peaks. Um, very rarely do you like see guys maintain like really good shooting numbers as their volume goes up. It's just inevitable. I mean, it's going to regress a bit. And that kind of happened to Mark last year. You know, he was a 45% shooter as a sophomore on 109 attempts. He took, I think, 34 more as a junior. His shooting dropped to 37%. And, you know, this year it's about 36% overall, which is normal. Like, so in aggregate, you look at his kind of shooting flow. And you'd say, yeah, this is, it's normal. Like, I don't think Mark Smith is ever going to be a 45% shooter for his college career. But 36 to 37 is normal. Um, now, the one thing that, that's disconcerting is that last year he shot um, 28% against Tier A teams, which are top 50 teams in Kimbom. So basically, against the best teams on Missouri's schedule, Mark was a 28% shooter. Um, so far, he's at 33% this year. He's 7 of 21 in five games. So that's gone up a bit, but his conference shooting has curtailed here. So, like, the question I have is, is this just a rough stretch for him? Like, or is, or are we going to see him, you know, pick it up and become a 35% shooter against really good teams? And this is just a bump and a blip that, you know, he's going to go through during the course of the season. Or are you going to see him, you know, settle out at 28 or 29% again against good teams in this conference? And if that happens then I think you're really, really worried about just how the flow of the offense works. Because right now you could at least, where they put him on the floor, you can have him as a kind of a weak side you know, guy in the slot, on the weak side slot, and he can catch and shoot from that spot, which is his preferred spot on the floor. You can have guys low in the corners where Javon can attack occasionally, or Kobe can shoot a jumper or back cut. But 
a lot of that's contingent upon some action happening, you know, in the middle of the floor. If everybody's sinking in there, then I, I really think it just gets tough for the offense to navigate or to create or manufacture any sort of offense. So I think your hope is that this is just, you know, the a blip and that, you know, he'll get back up to around 33 or 34% and, you know, provide the kind of commodity that Missouri desperately needs. Um, as far as what else he does for Missouri, um, I think I told you, I if you watched him at Edwardsville, I always thought he was more of a, of a strength and power driver than he was explosive off the bounce. A bully like he, guard, I think is what yeah, you called he, it. Yeah, he'll bully ball you a bit. He'd get, he's got a really strong shoulder that he could lead with, get into your chest. No, not, you know, he can get off the floor, but he's just not going to be a guy who's really going to blow by you off the dribble. Um, so he's going to get in the air. He's going to take contact and you hope he can finish. The issue right now is that against Arkansas and in this game, you know, teams have, you know, pinched in and stripped him of the ball as he's been trying to drive. His turnover rate right now is in the SC plays 35%. So, I mean, teams are just, you know, sending an extra body in him as a driver and getting a hand on the ball and stripping him. So it, it, it's been tough for me to think of what the alternative is for him if he's not knocking down shots. So if he's not going to be able to play efficiently off the bounce, it distresses the need for him to get back to hitting open jumpers, particularly catching shoots for them off penetration. Yeah, and that's what I was saying earlier, is not necessarily that maybe he doesn't have that capability, but at this point in his career, you know what he is, you know what he's not, and you were just mentioning his turnover numbers have gone up quite a bit, and I almost wonder if you know, maybe they're asking him to do a little bit too much. And, you know, asking him to do too much is probably a strong way of saying it, considering how bad the offense looked at times over the last few games, even if they were separated by a long period of time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, when you were watching those shots, it wasn't one of those things where, you know, oh, he just had a rough day, the shots were rimming out. I mean, he had a wide open jumper. I think it was about midway through the second half that he just like, just barely touched front iron and it was just like you can tell he's really going through it mentally at that point and I don't want to overemphasize like the mental element of the game but you know it's just he's a guy he's probably struggling with his confidence a little bit you know confidence impacts the your form and all that and it, it, he looks he, he doesn't look like anything is too off in terms of the way that he's shooting but it's just one of those things where, well, at least I should say I'm glad that Conzo is giving him the opportunity to shoot out of it, and luckily it's kind of come at a softer part of Missouri's schedule, although well, that's probably not going to be very true I don't much know if Conzo has many other options. If we're, if we're, like, <laughs> that's true. To, to work through here. I think, like I was looking at this individually, just because I think people are going to focus on him on the offensive end of the floor. Um, I'm going to try and sort this now. Uh, like, Mark is... Still, you know, defending at a giving up about 80 point, 85 points per 100 possessions. His individual net rating is still plus 10. Um, mm-hmm. Missouri's still better. They're 8.2 points per game per 100 possessions, excuse me, better with him on the floor, which is best among the starters. So, I mean, he's still defending at a solid level, um, still, you know, impacting the game defensively um, as a positional guy. And if the jumper you know, revives a bit, you're going to see, you know, the impact come back on the other end of the floor there. I think there's just, I don't know where they necessarily go for alternatives. And, and you kind of mentioned Mark being what he is. I think it's the case for the entire roster at this point. Um, yeah. There's just the upside of continuity is that you know what you have and you, and guys are familiar with what their roles are and they're familiar with their program, but you know, most of the time, for most of these guys, Missouri doesn't have, like, I would, you know, I feel safe saying Missouri doesn't have a surefire NBA player on its roster. So most of these guys are at the upper bound of their developmental curve, or they've already peaked out last year. So now it's just about trying to find out how often you can get their best performance from them. And, you know, people talk about, you know, Missouri winning. You know, we talked about earlier in the year, talking about Missouri playing its a game, it's B game, it's C game. I think Oregon is probably the closest you're going to see to their A game yeah. this year. Um, that's that's probably it. 
Um, Illinois was a good was heartening, mostly because the bench did a great job coming through that night for them when Mark and and Tilly were in foul trouble. But if you're going to talk about like what the actual rotation did, I I think the the Oregon game is probably their best game of the year for them. And so if you're looking for what this team can do, that's it. And that's Mark knocking down enough jumpers. That's Pinson, you know, being, you know, finding the right balance between assertiveness and, you know, caution, you know, pushing off break off, you know, secondary breaks. It's the pick and roll game working pretty well. It's Tillman, you know, being able to be creative where he getting where he's getting his post ups from, whether that's on a high low or off a ball reversal. Like I feel like if you watched Missouri's offense in that game, that was its A level execution. Um, and after that, realistically though, it's changed because the jump shooting has made it so much easier for teams to defend them now. So I almost think you're rooting for their B game now, where they get enough functional jump shooting to get to thirty percent, and they kind of piece it together the rest of the way from there. So, but that's again dependent on Mark, you know, rediscovering his stroke here in pretty short order. Yeah, and I mean, you 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 mentioned it basically as soon as you said it, but when you mentioned that Oregon was probably the best look at what we're going to get in terms of Missouri's, you know, A game when they're firing on all cylinders, the first thing that came to my head was, well, it's probably not in small part because that was the game where Mark was really lighting it up, especially in that first half. Um, before we move on from the Texas A&M game, although this is probably kind of transitioning out of it, looking forward a little bit, you mentioned that we we do we kind of know what we get from Missouri's roster at this point, being having been so familiar with these guys and these players for the last few years. Um, I think maybe not an exception, but the one big thing that's been standing out in terms of guys who may have been taking that next step all along is you know Jeremiah Tillman. Uh, Tillman has really, really been fantastic over these last few games. I can't remember exactly the numbers, but I think it was like over the last three games, he's averaging close to 19 points and nine rebounds. He had another double-double in College Station. Um, He just seems to be kind of finding that final step up to the best possible version of himself. And, you know, it's, it's always risky to say, especially with Jeremiah and how how aggressive he plays and especially in games when referees are a little more apt to blow the whistle than they were this last Saturday, you know, can he keep that that type of production or even stay on the floor for that long? But he's really taken another step. It's been really great to see him just be so patient and so decisive with the ball, not panic when he's getting double teamed, um, but not any either. He's not losing any of that aggressiveness down on the block and those free throws are starting to fall now, whereas they weren't at the be at the beginning of the year. Um, so what do you think? Do you think this is, do you think this is who Tillman is, or do you think we're due for some regression yeah, here? Uh, I, I think, you know, he's, you know, last year his foul rate was high against, you know, top flight teams, but overall over the last few years, you know, his foul rate has declined by about a free throw by about one foul mm-hmm. for 40 minutes. Um, 4.3 is, is still going to be. And a little higher than you want, but he's drawing 5.6 fouls for 40 minutes. Um, his free throw rate is 19th nationally. Yeah. So when you're getting him the ball, you're either getting, you know, a high efficiency look inside of four feet, or you're getting, or you're putting him on the line. Um, you know, you'd still like the free throw rate, to, free throw percentage to be a little bit higher. But you know, he's he's generating offense in a really efficient way for them. Um, I thought John Sunbull made the the salient point that Tillman's not a guy who commands the ball. Like the way Missouri's offense is structured now is not come down, run some early, you know, spacing cuts to arrange the floor before we enter the ball to Tilly on the left block. And then we play off him. That's not what Missouri does Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, But I think they find creative ways to get him touches. Like I mentioned a minute ago, at least earlier on in the year, they were getting him high-low looks. They would run um, a high pick and roll, or he would, or he would dive, and then they'd have Mitchell Smith cut up from the from the block. They'd run a roll and replace, basically, pitch it back, and then they just dump it inside. And the role for Tillman was really just to let him roll and bury a guy on mm-hmm. a duck in. That's how he got a good post touch, and he could still play over his favorite shoulder. Um, Missouri now will still come down. They'll still run some screening action. 
or they'll still run some a wing weave action, but instead of you know letting a guy turn the corner and drive, what they're really doing is trying to pull a big out off a switch, so there's not a low man who can rotate over. But then they'll feed the block in, feed the ball inside without that big guy, extra big guy there, and Tillman can play. And so the guy coming over on that hard double is a guard. So instead of having to play through two bigs and turn and step through or turn and pass through two bigs, it's another mm-hmm. guard there. Um, and Tillman's aware that that's where the, you know, the help is coming from, so he can play a little bit more patient on that side. So they, so one, it's credit to Tillman for for you know taking that step forward mentally, you know, playing with that poise. But I think Missouri's built in some ways to still get him touches in ways that he likes it. They've you know made a more way more concerted effort to use him as a roller, which I was thrilled with. I always thought that's what his best use for this team was, just given his how fluid he is, and how good his feet are, and how good his hands are. Um, so they've they've I think really structured the offense in the way that I think one, it gets Tillman to his spots, but it doesn't put the onus so much on him to be a prime driver for them offensively, which honestly that over the last couple of years, that was something I pushed for considerably. Cause I just, when I looked at the numbers and you went and looked at the best version of Tillman on tape, he was really good playing out mm-hmm. of double screen, out of double teams and making the right read and finding shooters or finding cutters. But that's just not the best fit for him within the structure of the offense. So I think they've done a nice job of building in ways to get him touches, to keep him involved, to keep him active, to keep him engaged. And, you know, I think that's helped him. Defensively, um, he, he's just playing with better position. He plays with more verticality. Um, I don't think – I think he's done a good job, and this has been mentioned a lot and written about a lot, how he he's not as protective of the paint as in he wants to dominate it. He I think he's – Understood that if he's hunting for blocks or if he's trying to be assertive there, that's just a that's just a ticket for fouls. Just walling up, forcing a tough shot, getting on the glass, and then busting it on a rim run and seeing if somebody's going to reward him that way can be just as productive as swatting a shot. So I just think they've done a nice job. One, coaching him through some of his mental mm-hmm. issues on the floor and just some of the things that could become traps for him. But they tweak the offense in a way that I think fits what he does really well. Um, and I think you're seeing the fruits of that right now. I, it's always interesting to watch a guy's progression, but I, I think sometimes we were asking, you know, too much mm-hmm. of Tillman in, in a way and putting our, and superimposing our expectations on it. And now you're seeing that I think the staff has, has cracked a little bit of the code for how to use him well. And, and it's good for him. I'm glad to see that he's, that they finally found a way to, to unlock you know, the most of his potential that's been so tantalizing for so long. Yeah. And I mean, the expectations that we put on him as, as fans and as, you know, basketball lovers probably weren't helped at all by the fact that he was part of that huge 2017 class. And really he was one of the, I I don't want to like undersell what a big get that the Porter brothers were, but he was kind of like, you know, you flipped him from Illinois. He was really the momentum grabber at that point where you're like, okay, everything is going Missouri's way. And I mean, obviously he's been the only one to stick around. I actually was perusing around Ken Palm today and I found Blake Harris's stat line from this year. I think he's at North Carolina and he, that was a trip down memory lane, but yeah, um, Tillman has stuck around. And like you said, he's improved steadily every single year. And I mean, you said the fruits, the fruits of that labor are paying off. You just go through his Ken Palm conference stats. Um, He's got the seventh best off- offensive rating in the conference, fourth best true shooting percentage, fifth best offensive rebounding rate, um, fifth best free throw rate, uh, sixth best two point percentage. Uh, his block rate is increasing a little bit. He had three blocks against A and M. He had that really nice chase, like chase down block. You know, he like he kind of followed up the play and anticipated it really well, timed the jump perfectly. It was a thing of beauty. Yeah, he. There's. I think he, the, those kinds of plays have always like led us to think there's something more there than rather just appreciating like that's that's the play that's the thing mm-hmm. that's the thing he does and I think so much of what's happened to Tillman is is people have superimposed their expectations on him because of what happened in that 17 class um, I think there's always going to be a bit of trauma around that um, and feeling like that class was snake bitten 
And so then I think Tillman became kind of the the vessel for a lot of those hopes. Um, but I think if anyone had like looked at Jeremiah's prep career and kind of had read scouting reports on him, it was all raw tools. And like I, I don't think anyone who looked at him and his trajectory coming into Missouri would be shocked that it would take him until like, the time he was a veteran to really put it all together. I think the anxiety came from the fact that, you know, Michael Porter obviously didn't have the storybook kind of narrative that we all, or that at least fans wanted. John Tate, you know, follows it up. Um, Blake Harris, you know, was a shotgun wedding that didn't pan out. Um, same with CJ Roberts. So realistically, like you look at the four members of that class, two were sort of like quick marriages of convenience that, you know, I don't think anybody should be surprised those didn't work. And then the, in, the just the awful injury of luck for the Porters left Tillman as this guy who was really raw, but now had to like carry and shoulder all these expectations. And then Missouri, you know, I think the staff saw all of his potential and saw what he could do. And they saw, you know, what the team did well as, you know, when they were shooting the ball, you know, late in 2017, 18, 2018, 19, down the stretch and thought, oh man, we can play through Tillman. We can, you know, have him as a focal point, he can pitch to shooters, we can balance this all out, and it just didn't work. And then you saw last year there was the injury issues. So, uh, it, you know, Sam and I have, you know, repeat the cliche that, you know, no no development is ever linear. And I think Tillman epitomizes that. But he's putting it all together at the right time, and I'm happy that, that that's sort of transpired for him this way. Yeah, for sure. I know you're on Ken Pom a lot, but did you happen to catch who his top comp was for this year? Um, uh, it's Oriaki, right? Yeah, Oriaki in 2013. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, uh, which that's hey, yeah. Alex didn't. Alex was a modest usage guy and knew what he did well and had a sense of his role and executed it. And that's all you can really ever hope for for a guy is that you know he'll he'll maximize his potential within the role that fits within the scheme and that's what Tillman's done this year for him yeah fond memories of Alex (laughs) thank you for your one and lone season for us in Columbia it was Um, a good one though he was good it it was Uh, the it'll be interesting to see what they do what the what kind of the vibe coming is coming is at coming out of this game will be sorry I'm I have enough coffee before I did this uh South Carolina is going to be pretty much the opposite challenge for them. So I think that that's going to be a little bit of a stylistic whiplash for people. But uh, we, we can talk about that if you want to feel like we, we need to give people the uh, the scoop as to what's coming next. Yeah, yeah. I will say before we dive into that, I, I did catch your, your take about coffee being a good dessert a few weeks ago. And I'm whole in wholehearted agreement with you there. So know that there is someone standing in your corner. <laughs> Um, in in that particular slice of, um, dessert life. But yeah, um, there's not a ton to, there's not a ton to look back, look forward to here. I mean, obviously we're going to see South Carolina. Um, I believe most of y'all should be listening to this on Tuesday, January 19th. Missouri is playing South Carolina this evening. Um, and then they'll head to Knoxville to face Tennessee for a second time. Um, we don't need to say much about Tennessee other than, I believe you succinctly put it off mic before we started recording. Uh, don't die in Knoxville. Um, don't get your doors blown off and live to fight another day. But um, South Carolina should be a, I, I don't like the word interesting, but I mean, it feels like the most vague use of pre-analysis that you can get. You know, South Carolina's only played six games. Um, this is such a strange team for Frank Martin. Uh, they don't have. I think they have one freshman who has played any minutes, and yeah, it's they're kind of the same thing. Lots of continuity on the roster. Yeah, they they've got a lot of young continuity on the roster. Um, and South Carolina is just like one of those stylistic teams that it's just hard to peg down. Like I think a lot of people think of, still think of like Frank from his days at Kansas State when they played Murder Ball, and they don't do that anymore. Um, I think when I look today, they're like among the top 20 in pace. They have one of the fastest half court offenses in the country, which they have for the past couple of years. Like Frank, I think Frank chafes when like people act like he's still this guy who wants to grind people into like ash. That's not what he wants to do. He's yeah, they're 21st in adjusted tempo and 54th in average possession length on offense. 
they will grind it out defensively. But when they get in the half court, they want to attack and they want to play up tempo. Um, so they play fast. They still force a lot of turnovers. Um, they're still going to play aggressive on the ball. They'll still foul, foul the ever loving crap out of you. Um, and because that's of the what style I thought murder ball meant, honestly, just the fact that yeah, they're going to the, try to kill you. <laughs> well, I think it's adjusted now to the where they plot, they don't let the ball swing. Like you're not going to see, like they don't want to let there be easy ball reversals. They're going to get into you. They're going to play on the line, up the line. They're going to shrink distances on you. Um, but part of the issue with that is, you know, it, in the effort to sort of assert themselves that way, it's made it life really tough for them in the half court defensively in other ways. Um, I think the other thing that stands out like in the time I've watched them and it's been confirmed by looking at synergy this afternoon is they just, they don't knock down jumpers. They, yeah. And when they do get to the line, they don't hit free throws. Like they're only averaging, I think 77 points per 100 possessions in the half court. That's 317th nationally. Um, like, they've got guys like Keyshawn Bryant and Justin Minaya who are really long, bouncy dudes. Neither of them can hit a jumper. Um, their best offense is getting on the glass or, or cutting or running the floor in transition. Uh, Willens Levesque is a big who's just sort of there to anchor the back line, rim protect, rebound, and, you know, play around with four athletic guards running around him. Um, but for a team that wants to force a lot of turnovers and apply pressure, they aren't very good. Uh, on the ball, they're I think 312th nationally in pick and roll defense, 306th uh, in defending cutters, which makes sense because of how aggressively they play on the ball. You can back cut the crap out of them, uh, but they are really good in transition defense. So, if you're Missouri, like this is a, a game where it, you know, South Carolina is going to want to up the tempo. They're going to want to force turnovers. They're going to want to get on the glass. And, you know, convert easy putbacks. And so Missouri, the onus here is, you know, value the ball. It, you know, hold on to it. All those positions are going to matter. Try and slow the pace down. You know, we talked about Missouri wanting to play a little faster. I think this is a game where you kind of want to throttle it down a bit and make South Carolina play in the half court. And then, you know, Missouri already sends three bodies to the glass. But they're going to have to tell their guards to be really, really, really aware of where Keyshawn Bryant and Justin Minaya are and throw their bodies in front of them. Because if there's a free lane to the rim, they're going to get there and they're going to put it back. Um, yeah. So, but the one thing that I think Missouri's got going for them is that South Carolina does not defend the pick and roll well. And if you can break them down off the bounce and put them in stressful situations with help, that cutting stat's going to be big because this seems like a game where Javon Pickett could have a nice little, he can make some, he can make a nice little meal out of just cutting cutting the baseline, yeah. waiting, hoping that South Carolina botches some in, inside rotations. They don't sink and fill properly, and he just cuts the living crap out of them. Um, Levesque is an okay post defender. He's not great. So it feels like if Missouri can value the ball, hold on to it, and make South Carolina play in the half court here, they can they can get a win. It's it, But it's going to come down to whether they can value the ball and keep the tempo where they want it and make South Carolina have to grind the gears a bit. Yeah. You mentioned Javon Pickett might be, might make a living off those cuts. I'd also like to see Xavier Pinson have a little bit of a bounce back game. I mean, he, he, he'll have his opportunities. Obviously South Carolina is no stranger to, to fouling. It might be nice to see him get back to the free throw line and tick those scoring numbers up a little bit. Yeah. It'll it'll be interesting what they do. I mean, they, uh, he's their sophomore point guard and Lawson, um, will, hunt passing lanes, which is why I suspect their defensive numbers look so bad in pick and rolls and in ISO a bit because they're going to be given license to go create turnovers. So the trade-off for Frank is we're going to be, uh, we're going to have some ugly metrics, but we're going to try and hopefully create some offense for ourselves. So I'm really curious how Missouri, who they target and switches a little bit. You know, Lawson's a longer guard, but he's kind of disinterested defensively. Uh, Kuzan can force some turnovers, but he's a little bit smaller. Um, or are you going to see reserves like Trey Hannibal and Seventh Woods come in and maybe play more of the combo guard role to shore some things up for them? But you know, it's it's going to be a team where they're going to have Kuzan 
Minaya and Levesque on the floor, and they're going to try and just toggle between guys at the wing and trying to trade offense for defense a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think unless there's anything else you want to touch on, that is that is all the Missouri basketball talk that we could squeeze out of this past uh, past week and the coming week. I do know that um, I'll give a shout-out to, I guess, Trayvon Brazil. Uh, Missouri's diamond in the rough recruit who apparently I think he like shut down Aminu Muhammad in a, in a high school game down in Southern yeah. Missouri. Um, yeah, he's yeah, they had like the uh, stand in for the TOC this weekend. I think, uh, yeah, it was Greenwood Kickapoo. And then I think sunrise Christian since the equivalent of their B team, their A team was playing at the St. James in Virginia this weekend. So, but uh, Brazil and Brookshire having, monster years that's a really good kickapoo team they've got mm-hmm. uh uh isaac haney who's a missouri state signee on that roster they've they've got you know if we're a normal year they're the you know hopefully we'll get to see a misha a state playoff run because that that team's loaded but really good weekend for brazil um i think he's going to be a guy who i'm um, you know i think he'll be him and do i think are going to be the guys that people seem to fix it on because both of them are long. They're kind of agile. Uh, and I think they're a little bit of a different uh, prototype than what we've seen on the wing the last couple of years. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see what happens when they get them in Columbia. Dear Gordon, who is already in Columbia. That I mm-hmm. guess that should be noted. Yeah. Um, uh, pseudo redshirting, or I think they have him officially redshirting for now, yeah. uh, but taking a scholarship. All right. Well, that is everything that we have for Dive Cuts. Again, thank you everyone for listening, and thank you for Sam. Thank you to Sam for the opportunity to step in and and sub. Uh, unlike unlike Hanzo Martin, we didn't sub a five for five this time, but no, we no, we didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, thank you again for listening, y'all. My name is Josh Madica. I'm on Twitter at Josh Magica, and all my writing is on RockMNation.com. Uh, Matt, uh, you, is your Matt J Harris eighty five on yeah, Twitter? Yeah. Matt yeah. J Harris eighty five on Twitter.com uh, for the Sterling um, college basketball analysis that you need in the moment. Also, you can watch either and listen to me complain about the Blues power play. Um, I really held back from making any hockey related statements, but uh, uh, hopefully next week Sam will be back with y'all. Um, take care. Thanks for listening.